looking forward to more of the same now. I just want to pray for you. I hand this across. Thank you. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for my brother Philip, for all the time I've known Philip, being a man that speaks your word, a man that wants to be used of you. We just pray, Father God, you may use him tonight. Speak through his words. Bless his preparation, Father. And may we hear your voice in his. Lord Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you, God. Thank you. I have thoroughly enjoyed being here today. Not least of which to enjoy fellowship this morning. Um, you couldn't turn all the mics down a little. So, um, Otherwise, if I raise my voice, uh, it, it might sound particularly Northern Irish. <laughs> You know, one of my most favourite, one of my one of my favourite memories, because um, Cole enjoys singing. We were at Sandhurst doing our professionally qualified officers' courses. Another name for it, which I won't actually share uh, on the platform. And um, the, the the chaplains would sometimes go to the Royal Memorial Chapel there um, to meet with other chaplains. It was it was a bit like a break in the madness of, of training. And we sang together in the chapel, How lovely is thy dwelling place, O Lord of hosts to me. And it was, it's been lovely not only to have fellowship here with, uh, with the church, but also to renew fellowship with, with Cole and Fiona. Um, I do remember very distinctly meeting this English Baptist. And I have to confess, coming from an Irish Baptist background with a teeny weeny smidge of, hmm, I wonder just how sound Cole is. <laughs> <laughs> but for over 20 years uh, our friendship has been absolutely solid and we have respected and I think admired each other in the work that we do in very different fields. Cole's ministry had a lot to do with the parachute regiment and active on service and uh, operations where I seem to spend a lot of time um, in academia and lecturing and stuff like that so um, it's been nice to catch up. In the time that I have remaining, and don't worry, uh, I will ignore the broken clock and re- reflect on this. I want to read a passage from Ephesians chapter 2. And it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic uh, passage of contrast. And one of the, one of the interesting things is that uh, sometimes I am introduced as Professor Philip McCormack, and People think that a professor has to speak in a language that no one can understand. Well, I desperately hope that the message tonight will be really simple and easy to understand, and I hope uplifting and edifying and also challenging, because I do want to challenge everyone in the meeting with a very simple idea. So Ephesians chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 1. As for you, You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, 
made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I love this next verse. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And I pray that the Lord would bless this reading to each of our hearts this evening. The longer I'm on the road and the more I read God's word, I'm struck by the wisdom that we find in its pages. In my ministry as an army chaplain, there were times when I had to be extremely diplomatic. Go tell your story. Um, I have to control this. I, I'm, I'm a storyteller at times, and, um, but this is an interesting story. When I was on my first tour in the, in, in the Balkans, uh, I was asked by um, the senior chaplain, a man called David Coulter, if I would do a piece of work with some American special forces that were in the northwest of the, of the country. So I was intrigued by this. Uh, I felt quite pleased to be given access to their compound, which is normally closed and you don't get access. And uh, when, I was, when I was speaking to the, to the folk about what they wanted to do, they, they, um, they were really keen to bring together um, the religious leaders in that part of the Balkans in order to begin dialogue. It wasn't that long after the Dayton Peace Accord. And large areas of the Balkans were still depopulated. There was a time of great population move. And so it sounded simple, but after years of vicious civil war, um, there was a lot of hatred. I could tell you multiple stories, but I won't digress from the story I'm telling you. After a few months of consistent work, I managed to get permission from the various religious groupings for their senior people to meet together in a meeting. And I thought I would be meeting with them and maybe one or two people would be there with me. Do There's all kinds of uh, hierarchy from the division there just to make sure that things went smoothly. And I was there just in, in uniform. Um, I was going to chair the meeting and act as the, the kind of honest arbiter. One of the reasons why I was able to get the group together was because I came from Northern Ireland and they looked with pity on me because they had heard about it and they actually thought that Northern Ireland had been worse than the Balkans. So they thought, okay, so he has a bit of idea of what we've been through. But when the meeting happened, the religious leaders arrived in their finery and oh my goodness, how resplendent they looked. The Serb Orthodox with all the gold embroidery the senior uh, religious uh, Islamic imam in the area. He looked really impressive in his religious finery. Catholic priest, the creation turned up. Have I asked you, what would you think a Catholic priest would turn up to a meeting in? 
black suit, black shirt, white, that was him. He turned up just as a Catholic priest. The very first question, the very first question, and I, I set the scene and what we were trying to do, and I felt the ground open beneath me when the imam turned to the, the Serb Orthodox and said, when will you give me back the bodies of my dead imams? Silence. And I could see all the senior officers looking to me to go, okay, Padre, over to you. <laughs> well, somehow, by the grace of God, I managed to navigate my way through it. And one of the senior um, US uh, SF people came up to me afterwards and said, Chaplain, that was amazing. How on earth did you do that? And I said, I have chaired Baptist church meetings. <laughs> <laughs> so the diplomat in me if I was thinking about how to compose a section I would be thinking about how would this be heard I wouldn't want to ordinarily give offence that's the last thing that I would want to do I find myself sometimes in public settings acting the, the role of the diplomat, trying to be diplomatic and conciliatory, trying to build relationships. I have no doubt that if a group of Baptists had a sat down together and were asked the question, describe the past of believers, it wouldn't be like this. It is unvarnished. It is absolutely raw. And it leaves none of us in any doubt of our spiritual state before a work of grace in our hearts. There can be a temptation, you know, and I've encountered this, where as we've been on the road as Christians for some time, and we have gained acceptance with other Christians in a context, that we can perhaps begin to forget exactly what we were before we came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul is utterly and completely uncompromising. Let me read the passage again. As for you, who? Not you and me. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live and followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. What an utterly uncompromising series of statements. The modern age in which we live, one of the great sins that you can commit is troubling people. I have to confess, every time I read some of our national newspapers, I wince even more at some of the nonsense in there. I was... Horrified when I read recently of some social media 
What's the phrase they use of him? Influencer. I didn't know you could have a job as a social media influencer. I, I mean, when I was going through secondary school in Northern Ireland, someone said to me, what job would you like? No one had the remotest idea that you could earn a living influencing people on social media. But they, they, these folk exist. And then they said, we should not teach millennials about the Second World War because it might upset them. Because <laughs> we can't upset people. We can't be honest with people. I watched a film yesterday, and it was brilliant. It's called 303 Squadron, and I would recommend that it. it's about the, uh, the Polish fighter squadron in the Second World War. And I watched it, and I just thought to myself, <laughs> thank goodness we had men of that caliber and courage facing the Luftwaffe in the Battle of Britain. Just amazing. It's just phenomenal. Because we live in an age in which we're almost embarrassed to tell the truth. And the truth is, our spiritual state before our salvation in Christ was absolutely abhorrent. Paul is absolutely clear. We were dead in trespasses and sins. And we were by nature objects of wrath. Now, if that was the end of the passage, I think everyone would be entitled to feel utterly and completely miserable. But God did not leave us there. He did not leave us there. Because God is a God of mercy and of great love and abundant grace. But the contrast I want to point out is dependent on us recognizing just how poor, terrible our spiritual estate was. I'm not going to focus on how we have been lifted up to sit together with Christ in spiritual places, though I would love to do that. I don't have the time. The clock's whizzing away from me. shouldn't tell stories, you see. If I didn't tell stories, I know some of you chained dispersions, you'll tell. If you didn't tell stories, you'd have much more time to focus on the text. And that's probably true. And I accept that. That's, it's a criticism of the way in which I, I speak. It grieves me at times, though, that believers don't live as those who are seated with Christ in spiritual places and heavenly places. All too often, we are too earthly located. We're too grounded in the world in which we find ourselves when our spiritual state is utterly different. Harry Ironside used to be a well-known Bible teacher I suspect some of the, the, the older brothers and sisters in the meeting tonight may even have read a book by Harry Ironside. And his book on Ephesians, his commentary on Ephesians, is called In the Heavenlies. Because that's our position. But all too often we allow ourselves to be confined to the world in which we live. And sometimes our mind can be bounded by the world in which we live. 
But what I want to focus on, and this is the, the thing that I said to Cole I would speak on, where Paul says that we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The word that's translated handiwork here in the text, in Greek, is a beautiful word. And the word is called poema. I think a better way to translate this word, locating it in the culture within which it came, is that the word poema was often translated masterpiece. Now, if you allow that thought just to linger in your mind for a moment, what Paul is saying to the, Ephesians, the Ephesian believers, and therefore us tonight in this meeting, that you and I, the redeemed of Christ, are God's masterpiece. The world may not see us in that way. The world may see us as flawed, inconsistent. But tonight, and it was so, I didn't, I, I, to be honest, I missed that we were having communion tonight. In the sight of God, when he looks down at this gathering of his people in Colchester, we are his masterpiece. I've had the privilege through my life of traveling to various countries and I've seen a wealth of things and I've stood amazed when I've looked at, for example, Turner's great masterpiece of the fighting Terramoran in the National Gallery. I like art and I enjoy art and we collect it. And a bit like that scene in James Bond where Daniel Craig was sitting looking at the painting, I have had the opportunity to sit there and only be a few feet away and just drink in the skill and the talent and the, the superb work of one of our greatest ever artists. And yet the work that God did in saving our lives makes Turner's work look like a crayon drawing. I stood in Bosnia on the top of uh, the Vitorog mountain. It was in the middle of winter. And the entire area was covered in a deep blanket of snow. The Yugoslavs used it as, a, as an early warning system. It was a nuclear chemical defensive position. So we're very high up six, eight thousand feet and the whole area was covered in snow and one particular evening there was this beautiful clear sky and there was the most amazing sunset I think I have ever seen in my life it was the type of setting that I would imagine a great artist would want to capture on canvas and when I saw it, I thought to myself and couldn't help but think to myself, what an amazing God we have. 
to see the majesty and grandeur and beauty of creation that speaks of an incredible creator, and yet it is you and I that are described as God's masterpiece. I've had the privilege of standing but a few feet away from Michelangelo's Pieta. I've seen photographs of it. But to stand that close to it and to look at it and to recognize the skill of one of the greatest artists that have ever lived on the planet and to see the magnificence of the work as he captures the scene. Totally unbiblical, of course. <laughs> but nevertheless, it's a magnificent work of art. And then to realize that what God did in the lives of you and I utterly eclipses that incredible masterpiece. And do you know what makes the difference? And I don't wish to be irreverent. And I have no desire to say anything that would be offensive. God can create giant ranges of mountains like the Alps that stand in grandeur and majesty and speak of His amazing power and genius. But the only way He can redeem a soul is through the sacrifice of His Son. That was that makes us different. Who else but God could take an image of sin, as Paul describes, and then an act of love and mercy and grace create a masterpiece. And that's what you are. I wonder how many times in your Christian life you have allowed the truth of this scripture to sink into your life and let it transform you. It's no wonder the angelic beings strive to look into what God does because they see us and they've seen us in our fallen state in all of the awfulness of sin and then watched in amazement as God in incredible grace takes a hell-deserving sinner and transforms him into his greatest masterpiece. Someone redeemed by the blood of Christ. It's phenomenal. The other thing that is out of fashion today with the Lord's people, and while that is wonderful, can I reread that verse again to you? For we are God's poema, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God had before prepared for us. The truth of the New Testament is this, brothers and sisters is that God seeks to transform the world 
through the message of the gospel, through ordinary people like you and I. We're left in no doubt that we can do nothing to save ourselves. So good works has got nothing to do with the salvation that we enjoy that enables us to have that understanding that spiritually speaking we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And as the redeemed we are God's masterpiece. But we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. In other words, there is an expectation placed upon those who have been transformed. There is a responsibility given to us who are the children of God, who are the poema of God, to do good works. If our lives had been so transformed, and if we were to seriously get an understanding of just how amazing God's salvation is, is there anything we would not do for a God who transformed us in the way that he has? But do you know the spooky thing in this? And I find this difficult to really get my head around. I'll read it again. For we are God's poema, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I am absolutely convinced there are U-shaped works that God desires you to do. Now for me, one of the great truths of the Bible is that God can take anyone and do virtually anything with them. I recently met uh, a politician and he was introduced to me as uh, I was introduced to him as Professor Philip McCormack and so he immediately had uh, a, he pigeonholed me as to what my background would be. He was utterly shocked when I told him that I'm a shipyard man. I started as an apprentice in Harlan and Wolf in 1979 and did a four-year apprenticeship to the day, by the way, yeah, none of this modern stuff, which meant I came out of my time about four months later because they added up every hour. Every sick day. If I was in hospital, didn't matter. Added it on until I came out of my time. When I was appointed as the principal of Spurgeon's College, an elder from a church that I had worked in wrote me an email and he said this, Who else but God could take a shipyard man and bring him to the position where he's the principal of that college? If you had have said to me when I was a young Christian as a center lathe turner in the shipyard that one day I would have a double doctorate and be made fun of by my friends. <laughs> they did. Here's Dr. Doctor. No, mercilessly. And that one day I would have the status of a professor and be the principal of a, an internationally known college. I would have thought you were utterly mad. But what I tell people 
is that there is nothing in me. It's all to do with the master. He is the potter. And he takes clay. And he molds that clay. If the clay will let the master potter work. And what he does. Is just nothing short of incredible. But in my 30 years in pastoral ministry. And Christian work. I'm sad to say that I have seen far too many Christians who settle for far too little. One of the criticisms that has sometimes been leveled at me, and I'm being very honest with you, you may never invite me back again, is that I have been described as being too driven. But I can explain why I've been driven. And I still think of this. And it challenges me. And the power of the challenge doesn't leave. One day I will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Not to give an account of my sin, for that, thank God, has been dealt with in Christ. And I will never give an account of my sin. But what I fear and what terrifies me is that at the judgment seat of Christ God might reveal the Philip I could have been and then show me the Philip I chose to be and be confronted by what the master potter could have done and yet I accepted so much less. I struggle, like most Christians, with the idea that there's anything about me that is masterly. (laughs) Ask my wife. She'll tell you exactly how unspecial I am. (laughs) But you know, in the hand of an incredible God, he can take very ordinary and do amazing with it. If we're really interested and serious about transforming our community, if we want to see lives transformed. I believe we need to live as those whose daily Christian experience is the understanding that spiritually our seat is with Christ in heaven. That we are God's masterpiece because he's done something that no, no one could do. He's taken a guilty sinner guilty of wrath and transformed him into a masterpiece as one of the redeemed. But he does expect us to work. And he has prepared those works in advance for us to do. There is no believer here of any age for whom there is an opt-out from this. And I'm absolutely convinced that your pastor and the leadership of this church would love nothing more than the believers in this fellowship to start seeking in prayer 
that U-shaped role that God has prepared for you to do because it is your reasonable service. And so I'll leave it there with that idea. We are God's masterpiece and he has work for us to do.